Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview my sister and Limud Seattle 2018 presenter Miriam Libicki about her writing and drawing process. Miriam is a graphic novelist with a focus on the Jewish experience. While her characters are cute, her topics are meant to be challenging. One of the central uh, challenges in my artwork, challenges for myself, um, is how do I trick people into caring about the things I care about? Welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here, and congrats on the new podcast. Thank you. Um, congratulations to you for getting accepted as an invited presenter to the original Limud in England. OG Limud. OG Limud. Can you tell me what you'll be presenting there? Um, so I'm actually teaching four sessions there, um, so that's going to be really exciting. So one of them is the same that as when I taught at uh, Limud Seattle, so that one is about um, how identity ties in with my work, and then uh, there's an interactive part also where people also explore identity through explore their own identity through drawings. And uh, another one is gonna be also I have another one that's quite workshoppy. So it's about uh, sort of autobiography and accessing memories in a, in a like strong narrative image sort of way using the techniques of uh, Linda Berry, um, who is a longtime underground indie cartoonist and also teaches at, I believe, University of Wisconsin now. Um, so she has written several books about about accessing creativity, basically, um, and um, using uh, different paths. Uh, so it's kind of adapted from her techniques, so that'll be uh, a lecture and a hands-on uh, where where participants will draw their own comics based on memories. And then I have one that is going to be a reading from my longest essay, uh, my essay about Jewishness and blackness, um, called Stranging the Welcomer. And, and then my fourth one is also going to be more lecture format, um, and it's about how people who were marginalized, who are along some access of marginalization, um, often end up creating the most powerful and most widely appealing creative works, um, and talking specifically about comics, about uh, marginalized people who, uh, uh, in some cases, even hid their marginalized identity, but then coded it into their comics, and their comics became some of the most popular. Um, so you said you're going to repeat the one that you did at Limud Seattle, and I was there. And the title of that was Cartooning a Split Jewish Identity, the Autobiographical Comics of Miriam Lubicki. I know you also did a similar class when you were the artist-in-residence at the Vancouver Public Library. Um, so I was just kind of wondering, that was your first Limud class, what made you decide to teach that particular class at Limud? Well, the exercise that goes with it, which is about about uh, uh, thinking about your identity and not only about your self-identity, but about the ways others perceive you. So that was an exercise that I did first in a in a comics making class at Emily Carr University. So I teach 
also adjunct in the illustration department at Emily Carr University, and so that was kind of an exercise that I thought up, inspired by an art teacher who had made mean caricatures of his students. So I was thinking, you know, a lot of people have this idea of the way that they might be perceived by others, and it can be very informative and cathartic just to actually try to go ahead and draw those. And so I ran it once in in my class for um, undergraduate illustrators, and it went really well, and it had really good results. And then, yeah, I think you're right. I think I did do also a version of it uh, during my introductory lecture as the writer-in-residence at the Vancouver Public Library and kind of leading the audience, the library patrons, in that same exercise. And so I, I, I had uh, done it with a few different populations or a couple of different populations, and I thought that it would be successful at Limud Seattle and that I could tie it in also with just talking about my comics, uh, do a little bit of a reading about my output, because identity is definitely one of the strongest themes in my comics. My memory of the class is one of the reasons why I found it so compelling was participating in the class were people of all different stripes. Um, I remember when we ended up presenting our stereotypes, there was a woman who brought out her self-perceived stereotype of the wacky old art lady. There was a guy who his stereotype was an office dude. Um, and another teenage girl who portrayed herself as the angsty teenager. And what I thought was so cool was that while we were presenting, everyone was completely engaged. And there seemed to be this sort of shared sense of humanity where people really recognized uh, the commonality of experiencing anxiety, being stereotyped, but also kind of feeling proud of what makes you different. So that leads me to the question, um, do you see some kind of more profound connection that people can establish when they share their art together? And how has that played out in the classes that you've taught? I think so, definitely. And I think especially if it's autobiographical, and um, I think that the fact that the meaning of it is more important than, you know, somebody's drawing skills or not drawing skills, because I think a lot of people would do end up apologizing for their drawing skills, but that's really not uh, what your fellow students are seeing. I think it's a combination of, you know, how expressive you can make your drawing and also, you know, the way you talk about it. And so I think you're right that it really creates a sense of camaraderie. Um, but I think autobiographical comics does that as well, is something that I've learned, is that autobiographical comics uh, can often actually be a way of finding community, because you think you're talking only about yourself, but then people read it and they say, oh, I've felt the exact same way. Have you connected with people in that way, either over email or through comic book conventions where you've had conversations with people that have expressed that to you? Totally. Yeah. Um, I have a lot. Um, there are a couple of like, um, academics who have, um, written like chapters that included my comics. And so I've gotten in touch with them and often they will be <laughs> Jewish American women. And so then we, you know, we've talked about that and they've said like what parts of my experience they see themselves in and as well, like, also just at Comic-Cons, often it's people I would not expect. It's been really gratifying with the Jobnik comics, which are based on my time in the Israeli army. 
uh, talking to a lot of like US veterans, and they'll come up and they'll say, you know, they'll share their experiences with me also. And they'll say this part I identify with. But this part, my service was very different from yours. <laughs> and uh, I was visiting University of Susquehanna last week. And a professor had assigned Jobnik to his students. And so I was doing Q&A with the students. And somebody came up to me and said that she identified so much with with my story that she uh, was born in uh, the States and then moved with her family back to Nigeria, where her family had come from, and then kind of moved back to the States. So she said she really identified with the feeling of, you know, conflicting ideas about, you know, home versus not home and belonging versus not belonging and your people versus not your people. Uh, and so I, that, that was super interesting to me. And, and she said, like, she's even, it, it inspired her to try to see if she could put her story in comics form. So kind of what I'm hearing is that comics, just like the rest of literature, is a way that we can look at our own lives and kind of use someone else's insights to help figure them out, identify our emotions, identify our impulses. So I wanted to ask you about how that applies sort of self-reflexively. Um, because I recently listened to the interview that you did on the Storytelling Hour out of Vancouver, the show, um, and you were talking a little bit about how your comics can often be very personal and how the emotions that you deal with are kind of still there inside you. And it seemed to me what you were saying is that drawing the art, engaging in the comics, helps you process those emotions. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little more. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, when you do art, I think you end up getting into a very analytical place. And hopefully there's also a flow, there's a space beyond the analysis. But uh, initially, you have to make all sorts of decisions. You have to decide about composition. You have to decide about, you know, how many panels will this particular passage take? You know, what should the timing be? What should the size of panels in relation to each other? And you're like taking, so your emotions and your story are the raw materials, but then you have to decide on the best shape of it, you know, for an audience. And so I think that just having that really um, analytical part of it, um, where you're not really saying, you know, this emotion is good or bad, or this emotion is healthy or unhealthy or helpful or unhelpful, but just like, how do I convey this in an effective and affecting way? Um, and so I do think that that helps to put experiences I've had also in a category where they're, they, they don't, you know, they're, they're present, but they're present as, as tools, as, as storytelling bricks, um, rather than as something that might still torture me. So it's therapeutic in a way. Yeah, I think so. It's therapeutic because, you know, you get to shelve it in a different part of your brain when you're making it into art. So another thing you talked about in that interview that I thought was really interesting is you were talking about how it can sometimes be useful to write about situations where enough time has passed that you have a perspective on it that you wouldn't necessarily have if it had just happened. So I wonder if you could speak to how you make that choice of when to portray something. Is the timing important? Have you done it different ways? Have you seen different results? Yeah, I 
I think that I, I kind of, there was a time that I kept a journal about monthly or so, and I keep struggling trying to uh, make myself keep a journal again, because in the time when things are happening, it's either very boring or it's painful to try to write things down in a journal. So I don't think I really uh, enjoy journaling in the moment, but when, whenever I have been able to um, journal ex in experience out, it's always good later. Like uh, sometimes this year, I've had a particularly uh, traumatic time of something or something kind of extreme happened to me. And I, at the moment it happens, I really don't want to talk about it to anybody, not even myself. Um, but I kind of still had a piece of my brain saying, eventually, I think I'm going to want to turn this into something. And so I kind of forced myself to just to, to journal it out and just get as much of the facts down as I could, get as much of every single piece of memory down as I could. And so when I was writing it then, I was going off into tangents and into like finding meaning in things and into, you know, saying how I feel about it. And this is like that. But when I did go back and felt enough time had passed and felt like I had a plan for how to write the story, then uh, going back to that raw material was really good. But, um, you know, I the parts that I was concluding, the things that I was deciding was true as the experience was happening to me, were not really the things that I was deciding were the most interesting or the most or the most truthful uh, when I went back into it. Because I think I did have to have that distance to see, well, what structure and what framework am I going to put on this? And it's not the same one that I kind of was feeling um, as I was writing them down initially. Yeah, it's really interesting that you seem to take a very analytical approach um, to your personal life, which is especially interesting to me because you also, besides the more personal autobiographical comics that you do, you also do more sociological or critiques of society, those types of comics, but you tend to make them more personal by inserting your own character into them. And I wonder if you could just expound on your motivation for putting the little Miriam character in when you're talking about great big issues uh, like mass immigration, uh, war, <laughs> persecution. Why do you think um, it's more effective to have your caricature um, in that piece? I really believe in the, uh, I guess, modernist and postmodernist idea that, that all knowledge is embodied. All knowledge comes from somewhere, and there are ways to get at objectivity, but um, one of the ways you have to approach truth is the knowledge that you know, somebody is reaching this conclusion because of some reason. They have some motivation, they have some history, uh, they have some personal biases. And so I kind of feel like the best way to uh, approach that is to go ahead and center my, my history and my personal biases and to go ahead and examine on the page why I care so much and where my blind spots might be. I think that I was very influenced early on by reading Edward Said's Orientalism um, with the idea that the Western, um, just the Western society has constructed 
such a big and intricate idea of what the East is and what the other is that as a Western person, if you're writing about the East um, or colonized peoples, you really, it's almost impossible to write past what the narrative that you grew up with is to actually see what's there um, and to write about somebody else who is real rather than writing about basically yourself, basically, you know, yourself and the things you were taught um, and the values you were given. So I was like, well, if I, um, as a Westerner, am always going to be writing about myself when I write about the other, why not just write about myself? Why not just put myself in there and so that, you know, I can be subjected to judgment and scrutiny just as I am subjecting other people or ideas to judgment and scrutiny. One thing that you said you were talking about embodying the subject, and I remember some of your comments, your caricature kind of changes as the discussion progresses. I was wondering how you use that artistic technique of changing your character um, as your contemplation of the subject changes. Yeah, that was something that just kind of came to me in sort of a, just a brainstorm of coming from the text and thinking, how am I going to illustrate it? So it, I guess it, it grew out of a part in an essay that I did, which was about Jewish memoir um, and its influence on the genre of autobiocomics. So one of the things I was talking about in that essay was like fact versus fiction and the power of fact versus fiction. And I guess it tied in with um, Flaubert's uh, famous line that uh, Madame Bovary c'est moi, where he said that, you know, Madame Bovary is himself, that, um, and the way that Madame Bovary, like, is more powerful as fiction rather than as, you know, what if there was a historical account or whatnot. And so I guess just to tie it in, I had my character, like, put on a t-shirt as she was talking and as she was expounding on this stuff uh, that just said Madame Bovary c'est moi on it. And then I just kind of liked that as a device. Um, and so in my, in my later essay, The Stranging the Welcomer, I used it a lot. Like I, I, the, like what shirt she was wearing or not wearing or things that she put on her head or sometimes even things that happened to her drawn body tied into where the discussion was at. So you've spoken before how you had to work on the character Miriam um, as opposed to try to draw yourself completely realistically, that you wanted um, the character to have uh, some distinct features and not necessarily look like yourself, but like something that you would carry through your work to represent you. Um, could you speak a little more about that process? Yeah, um, I think uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever received is that if you're going to draw a long epic story, you've got to figure out characters that you enjoy drawing. And it's also true that if you, you know, iconize, if you caricature up a character a bit, you know, exaggerate some features, simplify some features, it's actually more recognizable in drawings than drawings which are more uh, true to the proportions of a human face, 
because as humans, we don't actually always look that different from each other. And also we can end up looking very different from ourselves at different angles. So I think that that's, I, I, that's why caricature and simplification um, and iconicity can be very good in comics. Um, so yeah, like when I started out the first few stories, I was trying to draw more realistically and people told me that they couldn't tell the characters apart and they couldn't tell when it was the protagonist or someone else. So that, so I kind of, um, just sort of trial and error. I drew a bunch of short stories, um, of, from my Jobnik stories, um, earlier and then, it was a couple of years in when I sort of arrived at the character that I like drawing and the character that I kind of, it just intuitively felt right, where I was like, yeah, yes, I feel about her. <laughs> I feel about this drawing the way that I feel about the character that I am creating out of my own diaries. Are there certain aspects of that caricature that you think make her more likable, make her more relatable? Like, what did you do with her that achieved that? Um, well, one artist that I'm really in uh, uh, inspired by, well, a couple of them. I, I really love Maurice Sendak, um, and I also am really inspired by Katsuhiro Otomo, who is the creator of Akira. Um, and so I think that typical manga style is, or what people think of as typical manga style is not necessarily appealing to me that much but his uh way of doing manga like a lot of people have said they see that influence in mine and i think it is true so the people you know are kind of stubby <laughs> they have large heads but not like crazy large heads um and they kind of you know they everyone sort of has a bit of a childlike affect even people who are supposed to be in their late teens kind of look like 10 year olds uh in akira um, and so I think that that was not completely conscious, but people have, have pointed out the parallels, and I think it's true. Like, I've had people, when they've been reviewing Jobnik, have said that everybody looks a bit more childlike than they're supposed to be, and this kind of plays up the the innocence and inexperience and just inability to cope of these characters, even though they are they are soldiers in an active military so yeah, I definitely see that in your work, the big eyes. Um, it makes everyone look just a little cuter. Um, what I think is interesting is that you actually continue that style um, in your nonfiction works, which can often deal with some hefty subjects. Um, what do you think about that juxtaposition of um, subjects that really trouble us being portrayed in kind of a cuter way? Um, I do think it's about just just trying to connect with an audience, like getting people on a certain, you know, either evolutionary or culturally trained level to to connect and identify with. And, you know, Big Eyes is something that does that, like in cartoons and children's books. Uh, of course, like children do have bigger eyes in proportion to their heads than adults. And so maybe even evolutionarily speaking, there's something that uh, draws us to those faces. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, even sometimes even with photographs, like I will actually trace a reference photo, but I will leave the eyes out and I will draw those freehand. 
um, both so I can have a little bit more control over the expression, so the, the 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 exact facial expression and the direction the person is looking, and also like a lot of times I do draw people's eyes bigger even when it's clearly a photo reference, uh, just again to to draw people in, to draw the audience in, to you know make it look a little bit more like a, a an internal depiction than an external um, objective depiction. Because, I mean, I think that, like, I started doing my stuff, which a lot of has to do with identity, as we said, but also mostly Jewish identity. Um, and I think that it's kind of significant that I started um, making these very Jewy comics when I left Israel, um, when I moved away from Israel and I was away from our uh, Orthodox community that we grew up in Ohio and was kind of in Seattle and then later in Vancouver, which I was really not in any sort of Jewish community at the time when I started. Like, none of my friends were Jewish, my partner and his family were not Jewish. And so I think that partly I wanted to really assert my Jewish identity, and that's why I started making all these comics. But as well, it meant that my audience would not have the cultural knowledge or context or even necessarily care about these Jewish matters like Israel-Diaspora relations or, you know, uh, Israeli politics that I cared so much about. And so one of the, one of the central uh, challenges in my artwork, challenges for myself, um, is how do I trick people into caring about the things I care about? Um, and so trying to make art more beautiful or trying to make art more appealing in some way um, is definitely one one of my strategies in uh, in in tricking people into listening to me. Yeah. So you said that your audience doesn't necessarily have the same background to understand the subjects that you're delving in quite deeply. What is your stance? Do you try to give explanations, give um, introductions, flesh out your subject matter to? bring people in? Or are you trusting your audience to kind of jump in the deep end and follow you where they might not initially know what's going on? I do try to give intro give introductions if I can do it in a smooth way. So like in, uh, in Jobnik, I will have some untranslated terms and then I will have like a little asterisk pointing to the uh, bottom of the panel, and then at the end I'll have a longer glossary about the slang that I was using. Um, and so I think that that can make it a little bit more accessible, but it also makes it entertaining for people who do know. Like, so they can say, oh, what is uh, what is my conception of what, you know, the word se'ira means in the Israeli army versus what this person says about it. So I, yeah, it, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, in some of them, uh, like some of my essays are somewhat academic as well. So in some of them, I use more like postmodern language and talking about, you know, semiotics and stuff. But it's still my goal that those should be engaging to somebody who does not have an uh, English literature degree or whatever, uh, or a philosophy degree. And so I, I think I do try to not be talking to insidery whenever possible, because, you know, I, I always want it both ways. I always want to appeal to insiders and appeal to Jews and <laughs> make Jews feel like they have special knowledge when they're reading my stuff, but also be accessible to 
somebody who might just be curious and not have the background. Can you recommend your favorite comics with Jewish content? Um, I'm a big fan of Ruta Modan. Um, so, she, yeah, I would say both of her books, especially her more recent book, The Property. I think that that I thought it was super interesting and it really spoke to a lot of things that I observed of Israelis. Um, but I think it, it is very accessible also to somebody who doesn't know Israeli culture. But if you do know Israeli culture a bit, there's there's even more to pick up on in it. So both of her books, she originally wrote in English for an English speaking audience. So but but she has also translated them herself and they have been published in in Israel. So I think it's very interesting when talking about, you know, what do you translate and what do you not translate? Um, what do you uh, explain and what do you not explain? I, I, I find her work very interesting from that perspective. Miriam Katin is another artist that I really love, um, autobiographical and Jewish. And so she wrote the book, We Are On Our Own, about um, herself and her mother uh, fleeing across Europe during World War II. Um, so she writes it from her own perspective when she was a three-year-old. But she has another book called Letting It Go, which is about, you know, as, as she's an established, retired artist, um, her, her only child uh, moves to Germany and hooks up with a, uh, with a German woman and then wants her to come visit him. And so it's basically all about her internal dialogue and her trying to work through her feelings about Germany. Um, so it's, 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 interesting. it's a very slice of life one, but I, it's super engaging just the way she, she draws out her thought processes and the way she has her character, which is also her, also reacting in extreme and not always the best ways. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I had a great time talking to you. Me too. The Seattle Moodcast was edited at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Many thanks to Tamar Lieb and Jacob Rosenblum for letting us record the interview halfway between Vancouver and Seattle in their Bellingham home. Thanks again to our guest, Miriam Labicki. Check out her book, Toward a Hot Jew, from Fantagraphics.